according to all those numbers moving, we are now recording. So this one's being recorded too. There you go. Come on, folks. We got plenty of chairs here. We can create a new front row. Well, he's a professional at chair setting. Professional so chair setting. All right. So last week we did a lot of background stuff, which I'm not going to cover again because, you know, that was last week. Um, however, as soon as Mark helps me understand life better, um, I will get the recording of it back up. Uh, this week we're looking at the handout. We went basically just through the first two. Uh, is that your remembrance? I don't think we got much in past number two. Um, which is fine because that was fine, that foundational. So we're going to use the same handout. Um, we may even be able to finish it today. If we don't, we're going to come close to it. Then next week, we'll finish whatever we haven't finished. But then we're going to be doing some hands-on stuff. So all right, let's use it as kind of a lab. So the same question as last week is the first one. And that is, what questions do you have about this process, meaning understanding the Bible? But the second question I would also like answers to, and that is, are there specific passages that you have found difficult for you? Um, I would prefer you not say an entire book, because it's really hard for me to, you know, cover an entire book next week. It's just probably not going to happen. So maybe zero it in for me a little bit more. But if you've got those, then we, when we start doing the lab work, so to speak, I'm going to start with the ones that you want to look at, kind of scratch where it itches, if you will. So questions or passages that you want me to write down? Anybody got any? Well, related to understanding the Bible. Right. Yeah. So. yeah. Of the Bible. Okay. I didn't know if you Let's were... not do Shakespeare. Well, I didn't know if you were focusing on a particular no, no. thing. No, so. okay. no. Yes, sir? Um, I'm actually curious about going from just being a, I don't know if you'd say a plain believer, but being more of a spiritual leader versus just, you know, being an attendee of church, but actually being, you know somebody that people look up to like, wow, that's a, you know, that's who I want to do kind of thing. Okay. Because I mean, yes, I, I believe it, but it's not one of those, I don't know, feel it necessarily, but um, yeah, like, I mean, you look at you or Doug or somebody like that, it's like, wow, you know, that's, that's impressive. So how do we go from being, yes, I believe it all and I know this is true to being okay. able to kind of exude that. Okay. And, and a lot of that is directly related to understanding the Bible, so I'm going to hit that part, the heaviest. Um, and I'll probably do that introductory to the rest of this, but let's okay. hear more if you have any other questions or passages. If you've got the passages, I will take a picture of this, so I will not forget them, and I'll have them ready for next week. Here's the situation because I don't know how to truncate it. Um, if I'm 
mulling over an issue and I keep drawing um, a reference to a scripture and I want to know if the application of that scripture fits what I'm mulling over. <laughs> and I don't want to be guilty of eisegesis, so how do I... First of all, I'm sitting here like the dickens trying to find the one specific that I'm thinking of. So, to him who much has been given, will much be required is where the, I mean, the words are coming out in that order, but I'm not sure that's right. So. Okay, so what I'm hearing in the questions, let me repeat yeah, it, yeah. see if I'm catching the spirit yeah, of this, is when I'm meditating on a passage, I'm studying it, I'm, I'm seeing it well, but now I'm wanting to move to the application part of it. What do I do with this? James says be doers, so how do I do it? Um, is the application I'm coming up with, does that have integrity with regard to what the passage actually objectively means? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay? So I'm not, you know, someone says, uh, uh, I'm, I'm thinking about doing such and such, and I say, well, the scripture says what you do, do quickly. <laughs> Anybody know the passage, by the way? That's what Jesus said when he told Judas, get out of here and get it done. So perhaps that's not what he was really talking about, you know? Or we pray together when the meal's brought at Red Robin, and when you're done with the prayer, you find me eating your fries, and I say, yes, but the Bible says watch and pray. <laughs> so, yeah, okay, stupid examples, but trying to make sure the application is, has integrity. Um, we will talk about that in the process and next week for sure. Now, you said a word, and when you said the word, everyone went. So, a lot of people went. For those of you who can't see my face, you're missing something right now. Um, you said eisegesis. That is actually the English word. I, forgive me, I'm sort of missing, mixing my E's, <laughs> the Greek and the English E's. But it's still an E. We can all recognize that, yes? So, eisegesis um, is from... Ago, and it does not mean a long time ago, uh, it means to lead. Okay? Um, ice, X. Those are prefixes. So the prefix X, what do you suppose that means in English? Because it means the same thing in Greek. Out. X it. <laughs> Out it. That's, you know. So to lead out, exegesis is the study of scripture in order to lead the meaning that God has given us out of scripture. Eisegesis is the exact opposite, and it is something we want to avoid doing, which is into, to lead into. So that's where we come to the conclusion, and then we start looking at the Bible to figure out how to prove it. Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever done that? We talked about the biases last week. And I mean, that's what happens a lot of times where we basically just get into the scripture to figure out how to make sure everybody knows we're right. Uh, not bad as long as you understand when the scripture doesn't agree with you that you are indeed not right. And then you can change your mind and be right again. 
Here's a luxury God gives us. So eisegesis, exegesis, that was extra credit and no extra charge. It is amazing what we're giving you here. Does exegesis relate? Is it similar to hermeneutics then? Well, exegesis is simply um, the study. Hermeneutics is the system of principles we apply in order to understand what we're studying. So giant overlap, how's that? Not the same. Okay, so I'm going to draw your attention once again to the rules, unless someone had another question or a passage. Yes, go ahead. I'm not sure I exactly understand the study of Scripture to lead out. I, I don't it, it basically means, as we talked about last week, I have to be willing to go to the Bible and say, okay, Lord, I'm going to lay my biases aside. Okay. I'm not going to start with a conclusion so that I can now hear what you're saying. Whereas to lead in is, no, I'm, I'm starting with a conclusion, and I'll twist scripture any way I have to to make it back me up. To fit what I want it yeah. to. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Anything else? I've got one more. Yeah. Uh, how can we tell the difference between, like, leaving something in God's hands and putting God to the test? I've grown up with that, and it's been kind of hammered into me when I was young about, you know, the passage about Jesus being tempted, and he says, he quotes scripture and says, do not put the Lord thy God to the test. So how do we tell the difference? Okay. So what you just did, although you didn't start out that way, is give me a good passage for this. So forgive me, but I'm just going to stall until next week and use that as one of our labs. All right. Uh, what he's referring to, by the way, is in Matthew 3 as the temptation of Jesus and what his response is to Satan in that process, or one of the responses. So it'll be a good way of looking at some of these principles. All right. Any others? Anybody pick up, by the way, when you guys answer? You know I'm counting, right? We've talked about that. This, every class is a little bit different, but you guys are solidly 8.5. So how's that work when the guy waits 1.5 seconds? Pretty good. Ten's perfect, don't I? Uh, oh, sure. That's what I meant. Yep. Okay. Yep, yep. So let's go with number three. We're assuming number one and two. If you don't, if you weren't here last week or you're not remembering this, then... Trust me, this will actually get loaded, and um, then you'll be able to hear all about one and two, and you'll get the background of that. Basically, we're starting off with, watch your biases all over the place. It's that important. Then, here are steps to take as we're studying a passage. First of all, understand the passage according to its context. So if you're going to talk about principles of understanding, any literature or at least a passage of literature. Probably the first word you're always going to start with is context. Hang on, there's context, and there's context, and then there's context, right? So, for example, there's the immediate context. Um, let's see, give me an example. Okay. Um, Paul says, love is patient, love is kind. 
And he goes on to tell us 13 other things love is, or isn't, in some cases. Does anybody know the immediate context? What would be the immediate context of 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 9, I believe, is the actual listing of all those things. So what's the immediate context? If he was addressing the Corinthian church, he was telling them how to respond to one another and how to treat each other. Okay, but that's not the immediate context. So here's a hint. Mm -hmm. 1 Corinthians 13, 4... Well, then the immediate context is three. Three, <laughs> exactly. So the immediate context is what's bumping up against us, right? So uh, you'll hear me saying this, or using this passage a lot. We, we did some last week because it's such a beautiful example of how we mess up. Um, Ephesians 5.22, you all have that memorized, right? What does it say? Husbands love you. Or, yeah. Wives submit to your husbands. Why, that's right. Wives You're going to 25. Your Mind your own business. <laughs> so wives, not husbands. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Well, that's the, that's a cross between NIV and NASB. With submit in parentheses. No, it's not in parentheses. Parentheses is different. It's in italics. Yeah. Now, what does italics mean? It means it's not there. It means it's not there. And you know that, by the way, by reading the translation notes at the beginning of this, which, of course, no one ever does unless you're actually teaching it, right? And in the translation notes, they tell you there are some passages where, for the benefit of clarity, we have provided an interpolation, which means they add those words. So what they're saying to you is the actual text reads... Wives... No, wives. You're, I'm sorry, you're right. So I was just so ready to... to him in here. Yeah. <laughs> wives to your own There you husbands. go. Wives to your own husbands. So you've got vocative, the, the address, and you've got an infinitive clause. Any grammarians in here? There's a real problem with that. We don't have a verb. Verbs are our friends. We need a verb. Yes? So, how did... Submit or NASB be subject, how did that get in there? You know what most people say when I ask that question? Translators are a bunch of old men. Yeah. <laughs> I'm serious. That's the most popular answer. For 40 years, I've asked that question. And that's the most popular answer. And no, that's not true. Well, the old man part might be. I don't know. I don't know the names. It but. goes back to the previous verses that he's talking about. Uh, the immediate context is verse 21, yeah. if this is verse 22. What does verse 21 say? Does anybody know? Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. All right. And by the way, are there any italics in that? It's not in my Bible. There you go. <laughs> so submit to one another. And that's actually there. In other words, Paul actually wrote that. So submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives to your own husbands. Now it makes plenty of sense, right? But it makes no sense without the immediate context. Now, why is it different, by the way, we're, we're jumping a little ahead, but it's okay. Why is it different in terms of understanding the passage? To make sure you're driven back to immediate context and you read verse 21, as well as 22. 
What does 22 tell you to do? First of all, who does it tell you? Who does it tell to do something? Wife. Wife. Am I a wife? No. Therefore, it doesn't apply to me, right? Because I'm not a wife. Don't you wrinkle your brow at me? I'm not a wife. <laughs> I am sure. I'm totally confident in my identity. So, I don't have to mess with verse 22, do I? Well, I don't, actually. However, the implication then is, who is to submit in a marriage? The wife. The wife. Implication. The implication is wife. Yeah. Now, if we read one more sentence, going back to 21, immediate context, who is to submit? Everybody. Everyone. Everyone. And not just in the marriage, by the way, because then you, you read more of the immediate context and you find out it applies to uh, fathers and children, and fathers is a metonymy, hold on to that word, because we'll get to it down the road here, um, and to slaves and masters. Masters are supposed to submit to their slaves, according to Paul. This is fairly radical, agree? But that is what he said. It's very clear. So if I'm one of those eisegesis people, and I believe very strongly in uh, a male dominance pattern in a marriage, then I love 522, right? Mm -hmm. I'm going to quote that all over the place, even though, by the way, uh, there's another thing that we're going to run into here in terms of parts of speech and the grammar that makes 522 none of my business, which is why I told you to mind your own business when you started to quote 525. Mm -hmm. Because what is the first word in 525? Husbands. Husbands, which I'm confident you are not. Not today. See? No, well, yes, not. I'm just going with not. All right. So this is why immediate context even can be so important. Just one sentence totally changes how we understand what Paul's saying. Nobody disagrees with this. Literally, nobody. In terms of biblical understanding. What I just said to you is not revolutionary. It's not new. Everybody has known this for 2,000 years. And yet, how many marriage seminars emphasize that? Versus just going to 522. So we need, we need the immediate context if we're going to understand the passage. But we also need the, the larger context. So, for example, back to 1 Corinthians 13, we're talking in love. But 1 Corinthians 13 is between two other chapters. And I'm not setting you up. So anybody want to guess what other chapters there are that it's between? 12 and 14. Yes. So I'm trying to make this simple, but nobody trusts me. <laughs> it's, it's like I'm leading a staff Bible study, and they're all silent, and they're going like, what's he pulling? <laughs> I ain't pulling anything. It's real. 1 Corinthians 13, every single time, is between 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14. Has anybody read those recently? Okay. So if you read those, what you're going to find out is they're all about spiritual gifts, or what is translated, at least, spiritual gifts. That's what those are about. 1 Corinthians 13 is sitting right in the middle. So you suppose Paul forgot what he was talking about and just went off on this? 
So if he didn't forget what he was talking about and just went off, then what's the context love is being discussed in? In the arena of our usage of our spiritual Spiritual gifts. And when Paul says the greatest of these, is he simply talking those three things he said, or is he talking about spiritual gifts? Because what he's telling them is, okay, you want to prophesy, you want to speak in tongues, wonderful. I do all of that. I'm telling you right now, the best thing you can possibly do is love. And then he goes into this long, poetic explanation of that. And we get lost in it, maybe because of the beauty of it. There's songs all over the place written about it. But what he's saying to us is, believe it or not, love, agape, is a spiritual gift and is, in fact, the highest of them. Now let's go to even more greater context. 12 through 14 are all chapters of what in that discussion? What? No, 12 through 14 are chapters of what? The book. The book. Which Corinthians? Which Corinthians? First Corinthians. First Corinthians. There's two of them. And the reason it's important to understand is if you read First Corinthians, there is a theme that runs all the way through First Corinthians. And the theme is unity. Or really, stop being disunified. So it's unity over what you are because... Paul calls them on the carpet at the very beginning for the disunity, and then he proceeds to illustrate in numerous very concrete ways how unity can be versus what they're doing. And then we read 12 to 14. And if you read those, by the way, one of the things you're going to find is he emphasizes the use of those spiritual gifts, not for the person who has the gift. It's not about their ego. It's not about, isn't it cool that you've got that? It's how can you use that for others, for the body? So even the love chapter, the greater context tells you why he's even talking about it. And it's unity. Unity in the body of Christ. That's why we even have this love chapter. So when we read it isolated, not only 13 isolated from the rest, but 4 through 9, or I'm pretty sure it's 4 through 9, uh, which is just the list of those 15 qualities isolated from the rest of 13. We're committing a grievous error by systematically removing context. And now it's like, well, what in the world is that about? Give you one more example. 2 Timothy 3.16. You've heard me quote this many times if you've been around. All scripture is inspired by God. It is profitable for teaching, for correction, for reproof, and for training in righteousness. Why did Paul write that? And I'm setting you up just a little bit, but I just told you why with, you know, what we're talking about here. He's setting the people straight now. Why? Because they're messing up royally. Well, this, this is true, but that's not really the answer to the question specifically. Because specifically, we know why he wrote that passage. That's, to encourage t- Timothy and to... Okay, you're going broad. Mm-hmm. And you're going broader... And see, this is what we do. We read these things, and then we try to figure out the big, big meaning of things without looking at the very obvious. So what was the first thing that we do in considering context, according to that handout? Immediate context. context. Now, that can be the verse before, but it can be the verse after as well. 
And if you read the verse after, what you're going to find is, I just quoted half a sentence. Just half. Because verse 17 is a purpose clause. A purpose clause tells you why something. But it's just a clause. It's not even a complete sentence. Verse 17, floating by itself, means nothing. In order that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So if I just say, here, I want to, I want to quote a passage. In order that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Does that tell you anything? What in order? All scripture is inspired by God. And it's profitable for teaching, correction, reproof, training in righteousness. In order that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Why are we given scripture according to that passage? So we'd be equipped. To do what? To do good work. To do good things. See? Which, by the way, immediately addresses this. Because James says, don't just be hearers, be doers. So how do we transition from, okay, we're here, we're hearing this stuff, that's cool, to more maturity? The simple answer, and it is a, it is a simple, and I'll give you more, is do what you're hearing. Practice it. And the longer you practice it, the better you get at it. Because that's what practice does. Or, by the way, there's another thing practice does. When I, when I practiced the clarinet, anybody know what that did to me? Did you hit the clarinet? It did. <laughs> Which led to me doing what? Stopping playing. Stopping. <laughs> so here's the problem. Practice often leads to one of two things. Either you get a lot better at it, or you get discouraged and you stop. So you gotta make sure you don't do the second one of those. Now by the way, there are, are good times to stop. Case in point, me playing the clarinet. This was a very wise decision, believe me. I mean, nightmarishly I sometimes remember I could be sitting on the platform on a Sunday morning with my clarinet as, as we sing. Oh, yeah. Screeching and screeching. It would have been a bad thing. Okay. So, understanding the passage according to its context. Spend a fair amount of time on that. Just those two points. Don't go anywhere until you're sure you know those things when you're understanding a passage. Always ask those questions. Immediately, what's going on around it? Okay? So, when I, on Sunday morning, when I say I'm taking this out of context... And so you need to write the passage down. And do what? Read, read it. Read it. That's why. Because when you read it, you get what's around it. Both the immediate sentences, maybe the same sentence, just the rest of it. But you also get, if you read, say, the whole chapter, uh, you, you begin to get the broader context. See? Now, the broader context ultimately is the entire Bible. So we start with, um, 1 Corinthians 13, 4. The immediate context would be 3 and 5, right? So a little bit broader would be the entire 1 Corinthians 13. And then broader would be 12 to 14 because it's a section 13 is part of. And then broader would be what? 1 Corinthians. The entire letter. And then broader, now this is a letter Paul wrote. 
So a broader context would be Paul's other Okay, maybe Paul's other letters. Most people would jump to the entire New Testament. I like that because Paul's other letters are more consistent with that in terms of what he's doing. And that can help you a lot too. Then you can go to the entire New Testament and then you can go to the entire Bible. See? And there's times when you're going to need to do that in order to understand. And those times will be pretty obvious as you get used to doing this. Now, the next one, understand the passage in light of all the Bible teaches, is basically what I just said when I went to the entire Bible. Okay? So, the whole Bible is the ultimate context of the passage. Galatians. Paul writes to the people in the region of Galatia. And he, he writes in there about not accepting the law, not turning back to the law, but instead of focusing on grace and faith. And we, we know historically some things, but I mean, you get a fair amount of understanding just reading the letter. But then, if you read Acts 15, and I'm not going to you know, try to tease the answer out of you for time's sake, but if you read Acts 15, Acts 15 is the account of the Jerusalem Council. And the Jerusalem Council was the first church council where leaders from more than one place gathered together. They said, here's an issue we need to deal with. Where do we go with this? And at the end of the discussion, a man named James, the same who wrote the book of James, or the letter of James in the New Testament, Jesus' little brother, half little brother, anyway, came out and said, on behalf of the elders, which included himself and a few others, and the apostles, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. I love that phrase. This is exactly how to present things when you're saying, look, God said to do this. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit. In other words, it's God's telling us this. And then add to us, because we think maybe doing what the Holy Spirit says is a good idea. And then he lays out their conclusions. The issue, does anybody remember the issue? The Jerusalem Council, Acts 15. Any Jews in the, in the room? Okay, so the issue is every one of us in the room, can we be Christian? And if the answer is yes, do we have to become Jewish to do it? That was the issue. So Paul writes to a bunch of Gentiles in the region of Galatia, warning them not to turn to the Mosaic Law. Why would he be doing that? They didn't have the Mosaic Law. Oh, but they did, because there were Jews from Jerusalem, Christians, saying, going to Galatia and saying, okay, if you want to be a Christian, that's fine, but you've got to be a Jew first, which means you've got to be circumcised. You've got to commit your life to following the law of Moses. And Paul, the Pharisee of Pharisees, says, wrong. Absolutely, totally wrong. They're preaching a false gospel here. Acts 15, the Holy Spirit says, according to James, Paul's right. So now we get some history from another part of the Bible that explains not only the specifics in Galatia, 
but also gives us a little bit more understanding of the intensity. Because if you actually study the Galatian letter word by word, you're going to find Paul says a lot more than our English translations say that he says. <coughs> uh, our translations are, shall we say, cleaned up a bit. That doesn't mean profanity. That means Paul gets extraordinarily intense, and there's uh, a couple places where the translators are just not going to translate that level of intensity. So they, they soften it a bit. So now we've got a much better understanding. Um, if we want to understand the Gospels, we've read the Gospels, we understand now about Messiah coming, because it talks about Messiah coming all the time. If, if the Bible, the whole Bible, is indeed the greater context, then where do we go to understand more about what those people, those shepherds that we're going to be singing about a lot this month who came to the manger, what they already had in their heads. What do you think? Their, their, their freedom from the Romans? No, I'm saying where do we go oh. to understand more? We've got the Gospels. We go back to Isaiah. Okay. Perhaps, you go to the Old Testament. Because everything they believe is from the Old Testament. They don't have the New Testament yet. The New Testament is telling, them about, telling us about them. But their faith is entirely rooted in the Old Testament. Why Isaiah? Because Isaiah prophesied a lot about the Messiah. Because many of the Messianic prophecies are in Isaiah. So we happen to know that. If you don't know that, just read the entire Old Testament. You'll still catch Isaiah. And then you're going to get a much better idea of what's going on in their heads. Because they have read or heard the entire Old Testament. And I guarantee you they've heard those passages from Isaiah because they are living under the Roman oppression. And the, the way of encouraging each other is to remind each other Messiah's coming. He's going to set us free from all of this. How do we know this? The greater context is the Bible. Which means, by the way, that to truly understand one of the Gospels, what else do I need to read? The rest of them. The, the rest of them. And then to truly understand all of them as a group, what else do I need to read? The Old Testament. Now, you remember all the emphasis last week on we can't approach this and be lazy. There's work. The Bible says we have to exert energy to study, to understand it. So now you're getting an idea of what we mean by that. Because we don't get to just read sentences and hope somehow God just miraculously gives us uh, the understanding of what they say. God can do that, but he's also said, no, study it. So we do what God says, or we don't understand. And we understand the clear in the, or excuse me, the unclear in light of the clear. So um, those of us who were in the New Testament uh, survey class a few weeks ago, we ended up with apocalyptic literature, and I gave you several examples. When the, quote, rapture, which is not a biblical word, but let's say the return of Christ that is accompanied by 
uh, dead people coming out of the graves, going up into the sky, and us joining them. When that, whatever you want to call it, happens, will it be secret? Anybody here heard of the secret rapture? You know? There'll be two in a car, and all of a sudden the one's looking, and the other one's gone. What happened to him? Come on, there's movies out about that. We know what the movies say. So, is that real? How do we know it's not real? Because I can't remember where it is, but it says that there'll be the sound of a trumpet and um, I think a great wind. Definitely the sound of a trumpet. Okay. I think you're probably referring to Thessalonians, uh, which does indeed talk about that. Jesus used another phrase. He said, it will be like lightning from the east to the west. And in that class on apocalyptic literature, on the Revelation of John, I asked, how many of you have been in a good Midwestern lightning storm? These are amazing, you know. But there is no one there who thinks the lightning's secret. Because literally everyone is in the brightest light you can imagine for like three seconds. And then it goes back to being dark. <laughs> so everybody knows the lightning's been here. Now, when he comes back, he says, it will be like that. So we've got something unclear. Does it mean this fictional thing that we read about or see in movies of you know two guys walking along, all of a sudden one guy's walking along, and the other one's going, what happened? No. That's not possible if his return is like the lightning from the east to the west. There's a very clear statement he gave us helps us understand an unclear, okay? There's a passage in Corinthians that, um, 1 Corinthians 15, 29. And 1 Corinthians 15, 29 refers to the baptism for the dead. It is the only time in the entire Bible that that phrase is found. So do we all know what baptism for the dead is about? Exactly. <laughs> so we all read that and we go, what? Now, there are religious groups who have formed entire doctrines and even denominations and or cults, depending on how you see them, on their interpretation of that. But here's the problem. We have an unclear passage that some people believe suggests Paul is saying you can be baptized and have that be efficacious, effective, for someone who's dead. It's called proxy baptism. Do we have anything in scripture that helps us understand baptism that would help us understand whether that's possible? Where? Anybody know? See, that is the problem, is that we say yes, but then we gotta go find it. Now, let's say we're studying it and someone says yes, but I can't remember where, like Linda with the trumpet. Okay, what tool might help you find where for the trumpet? Concordance. A concordance, because you can look up the word trumpet. What tool might help you find what the entire Bible teaches us about baptism? A concordance, because it uses the word baptism. There's another one, by the way, that goes with a concordance, complements it, called a topical Bible. 
And a topical Bible goes by topics, not necessarily the word. So let's say you want to study, for example, marriage. You look up the word marriage in a concordance, right? But we just talked about Ephesians 5 and a concept of mutual submission in marriage. And you won't find it in that concordance under a marriage because it doesn't use the word marriage. Concordance is like a computer. It's just that word you're looking up. But a topical Bible is going to give you passages about marriage, whether the word's there or not. So Ephesians 5 is going to be there. Does that make sense? So I might want to use a topical Bible as well, and I look at both of them. I compile everything I know about baptism. And I'm going to come up with an understanding of several basic things. Number one, baptism is, in fact, a picture of death, burial, and resurrection. That's very clearly stated. It's also historically known, but in the scripture, very clearly stated. Primarily, uh, the clearest would be Romans, where Paul talks about it, Romans 6. But I'm also going to find out who's a good candidate for baptism. Okay? And the person who is to be baptized is a person who believes, is repenting, and then follows that up following Jesus by living faithfully. Now there's several people that I can think of, or groups of people that I can think of, that does not describe. It does not describe, for example, an infant. Would you agree that that does not describe an infant? An infant is not capable of believing, they're not capable of repenting, they're not capable of intentional life. Yet. Okay? So baptism is not something an infant can have. Would you agree that someone who is an unbeliever would not be a candidate because it doesn't fit those things, right? By the way, anybody know where I got those? Probably the simplest place would be Acts 2.38. And how would you find those? You go to the concordance. You're just reading the passages, and then you, you read, by the way, not just the phrase, you actually look it up in the Bible and go to the immediate context and read the whole paragraph and it will be very clear. <clears throat> and this teaches that you have to have that repentance, for example. And people who don't believe don't repent. Would you agree with that? I mean, it's a little bit of a logical job, but it's not much of one. So I can't be baptized for somebody who doesn't believe. Now, would you believe or would you agree that someone who is dead is not capable of repentance? At least in any way that we would know and understand it. Everybody got that? You agree with that? So then whatever this means, and we can, we can go into it, which we're not going to quite yet, because nobody's asked me to put that passage on the list. Um, but for now, what we do know is what it doesn't mean because we've allowed clear teaching to explain unclear. Does that make sense? Jesus said, not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord, will inherit the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do, or another translation, practice the will of the Father. So I look at that and I say, so the way we earn our way to heaven is by practicing God's will by, by the good works that practice God's will. Okay? Because after all, it seems like that's what he's saying. 
and you're shaking your head. Why are you shaking your head? Oh, really? Prove it. <laughs> well, you, the Bible says you can't. Where? <laughs> Be ready for that or don't yeah. say it. Yeah. Or say, let's look it up. That's a perfectly good explanation. I don't remember. Let's look it up. Okay? And by the way, if you've got, you know, the electronic version, it's quick. <laughs> one of the reasons I like the electronic version. Does anybody already have that one? Because we're not going to, you know, waste 10, 15 minutes of tonight's looking it up. What? Gift of grace. No, I don't. Yeah, you're starting to quote it. I want to know where it is. And you are starting to quote it. So what would you do to find it? Look at a concordance. But wait a minute. Concordance is on certain words. So what word would you use? So maybe you'd want to start with a topical. Because then you don't have to worry about guessing the exact word unless you're remembering that passage. And I know there's a passage that says something and I know it includes grace. Okay, so now I'm going to use concordance and look up grace. And after reading a whole lot of places where it talks about grace, I'm going to come to Ephesians 2, 8, where Paul says, we are saved. It is by grace we are saved through faith, not of any, quote, works, another translation, thing we do, so that no one could brag about it. It is a free gift from God. So you're right, but the cultist that's teaching works by, uh, our, our salvation by works, see, they're going to just try to push that. So we've got to be able to go to the Bible and allow the very clear statement. You know, whatever else you think that means in, in Matthew 7, which is where I quoted, it doesn't mean you earn your way to heaven. Because it's very clear here that you can't do that. So that drives me back to Matthew 7, and I'm going to have to do some more of what's down here. All right. Number five, understand the meaning of the words in the passage. Now, we've been doing that, by the way, without doing it. So <clears throat> let's look at a couple things. First of all, <clears throat> excuse me, there's the word denotation, which means the definition. We need to know the denotation, um, and that is what a dictionary says it means. In other words, it's an objective thing. I think it means no. Don't really care what you think it means, right? And you should not want to know what I think. The answer isn't about what we think. What does it mean? Do you get that? Now, where do I look for a Greek word? Because I'm reading the Greek New Testament, right? Paul says love. Well, what, what is he even saying? I know the one thing I know is not love because he didn't speak English. So where do I look? We're told we have to forgive. Jesus said, you have to forgive. Poses a problem for some of us, particularly if we don't know what the word means. So how do we know what he means? I'm not tricking you. So you guys know the answer. A new, what? A New Testament dictionary. Okay, so you're going to start with a, uh, a dictionary that gives you what word it is. There's two ways of doing that, by the way, without knowing Greek. The first is to use an a, a, um, interlinear. Um, they are 
resources that have the English and the Greek in English letters, and then the Greek in Greek. Um, the problem with an, uh, an interlinear is you just about have to have a microscope to read them. Now, I'm not joking. We have a couple of copies in T6. You're welcome to borrow them, play with them. They're really helpful, particularly if they're in, in you know, electronic form where they're not that small, because my eyes won't do that anymore. Now, the other way is you go to one of the exhaustive concordances, and you look up that passage. So, 1 Corinthians 13.4. And you look up, actually, you're looking up love, and then you look up 13.4 in that passage, and it's going to give you like a word or two, and then it's going to give you a number. And if you go any exhaustive concordance, you go to the back, and you're going to see a list of Greek words. And they're numerically listed. All you need to be able to do is count. So you go to that number. And this one's going to be a fairly low number because they're alphabetical. You don't know that. It's a secret. But they are. Greek. And it's the Greek alphabet, and it starts with alpha. So let's say it's 23. And you look up 23, and it says agape. Now I know the word. And now I can go to that dictionary you were talking about, like vines or Little Kittle, or you know any number of other dictionaries. Again, all of these available next door. Any one of you can borrow them, play with them, get to know them before you actually put money out to buy your own. And I look that word up, and it tells me what it means. And that's why I know that agape and phileo and eros are different. And now I know which one Paul's talking about. Does that make sense? It's easy. So I said you have to forgive. <clears throat> Excuse me. What does forgive mean? Cancel the debt. Cancel the debt. How do you know that? I heard it before. <laughs> <laughs> She's been in your classes. Yeah, don't tell me because you said so. Because <laughs> someone looked it up. So whatever I say to you on Sunday morning and here, whatever, see, that word means this. Check it out. I'm not guessing. I know people are going to look it up. Trust me. I've never done it yet. I've only got a few weeks left here. Maybe I should try to pull this and do one where it doesn't really mean that and just see if someone checks it. I don't know. We'll see how mischievous I get in the next few weeks. But all you have to do when I say that is write that passage down and that word down and do that process. Now, don't just look at the, quote, dictionary in the back of the concordance because it's going to say agape, and guess what definition it's going to give you? No. Love. <laughs> we already got that word. I want more than that. I want, you know, which of the 23 different versions of love that Webster's has in the English dictionary are we talking about? Or is it a 24? I just need to know that. See? Of the passage that we've been talking about. Submit to one another. What's the word submit mean? Careful. To put oneself under the authority of. Okay, literally place yourself under. Now, I got to know what that means if I'm going to do it. And I'm commanded to do it. 
So one of the things you might want to do is whenever there is a command, and now we get back to doing, going from just hearing it to the maturity. Whenever there's a command in scripture, I'm being told I have to do this. Okay? Is Jesus saying you're going to go to hell if you don't do this? No. We're back to that works thing we just discussed. Now, what he's saying is, by the way, there are sometimes he is saying that because you don't have faith if you don't do that. If you don't repent, yeah, there's that hell thing. But here, no, what I'm going to have is a marriage that's extraordinarily unsatisfying because I'm ignoring one of the most important things that Jesus told me to do. So how do I think I'm going to have a great marriage while I'm ignoring the one who created it? Does that make sense? And you can apply that to every aspect of life. So we need to understand the meaning of the word. That's meaning. Then you need to understand connotation. Connotation is implied meaning. One of the reasons this is important is that there is implied meaning in the passage. So, for example, um, the word Donna, to any of you, just objectively, what does it mean? No, objectively, I mean just broadly. It is a girl's name. Would you agree? Yes. I know no guys named Donna. There might be one, but I don't know any. Now, to Randy, given what Patsy just said, what does it mean? Randy's wife. It means my wife. So, do you think maybe the word has more emotion to me, more added meaning, than it might to you? That's connotation. Um, I once almost lost a job because I was writing a newsletter. Uh, it was in, during that three and a half years I was serving a church agency instead of a local church. And I referred to kids. <laughs> what are kids? No, no. Well, okay. A, deno a denotation, if you look in the, in the it's not going to be number one in Webster's, but it'll be there, is goats. What's number one in an American dictionary? Kids. Children. Children. Where did it come from? The baby goats. goat. Goats. Yeah, baby goat, by the way. You're right. How many of you heard the term rug rat? Oh, yeah. A couple hundred years ago, kids, referring to children, meant the same thing. People didn't normally call children kids at that time. So when people used the term... It was like little beasts. <laughs> Unfortunately, the agency I was working with was in Kansas. And I don't have to say rural Kansas, because there's no not rural Kansas. <laughs> and in rural areas, they have goats. And more unfortunately, the executive director of the parent agency, in other words, the boss's boss's boss, was an 80-year-old former farm kid from Kansas. So he knew blame well I didn't mean goats, but he heard an attitude. What attitude did he read into? For what I just said to you. You young whippersnappers just not well, thinking of what you're saying. What? Little beasts. Oh, little beasts. Okay. Would you agree that's somewhat disrespectful if I really considered them that? And maybe a bit inappropriate for an agency that is called Youthville. 
focusing on serving kids. So I got read the riot act. Serving children. You know? Now, how many of you believe I was calling them little beasts? Now, I mean, I knew somewhere in the back of my mind that a couple hundred years ago that referred to goats, but I'm not 200 years old, so I sort of put that one away. Could not assume everybody else had. <laughs> so we knew the denotation, but the connotation was added to it. So there's two ways that's important in understanding the Bible. Number one is, did the Paul's readers have a connotation? When Gentile, that word, what does the word mean? Denotation. Not Jew. Jew. Not Jew. It's that simple. Just not Jew. Anybody else? So that's pretty simple. And to a group that's already identified themselves as 100% Gentile, would you agree that's not necessarily negative? I mean, are we all really looking down on ourselves that badly? But when I read that in the context of Pharisees talking in the Gospels, you suppose there might be some connotation. How do I find that out? Topical. Topical? Well, topical is going to tell me where it is. But now I've got it. So what I'm trying to figure out is what did they think, what did they hear when they heard that word? Concordance. No, concordance is going to keep bringing me back to the, to the passage. I've got the passage. Context. Commentary. What context? The, con- the immediate context of what they're saying about the Gentiles. Okay, so I might be able to get it from the immediate context. Um, if, they're, if, if reading two verses earlier or two verses later, they tell me their attitude. Now I don't have to guess. So that's first step. Now let's say that didn't tell me. Somebody had something else over here. Commentary. A commentary. What is a commentary? Well, hopefully it is a scholarly work that, <laughs> that someone has studied the culture of the times and can interpret connotation based on the culture. And okay. So you say hopefully... Um, and in times past, you at least somebody had to have a reason to publish it. However, we now have this thing called the internet. And what qualifications does it take to publish something on the internet? Nothing. Well, you do have to be able to punch some letters, but nothing more, right? So literally, a ten-year-old could have written whatever you're writing or, or reading. So you might want to find out: Does this person have any clue what they're talking? But basically a commentary is what I'm doing right now. I've already studied it. I'm sharing with you what I found. So it's a shortcut. I tell you right now, go to that as the last resort. Go to it if you can't find anything else. But find out for yourself first if you can. Because what you're going to do is you're going to learn the process. And now you don't have to rely on that person. Because last week we focused on bias. I believe one of the things I said is, I don't care who you are, you're biased. Every commentator is biased. And by the way, someone paid to have what they're putting out published. And they're biased. In fact, they're more biased because they've got money. People with money are biased. It's just a principle. But let's back up a minute. Before, just to learn the meaning of a word, we looked at a dictionary. 
Why do you suppose Webster's has like 20 entries on a lot of words? Different contexts, <coughs> different contexts and connotations. So as you look in those dictionaries, a lot of times, particularly with the more in-depth ones, Vines may be certainly Little Kittle. And again, I'm, I'm giving you names of some. They're next door, they're available, every one of you can use them. They will often refer to, in this context, Little Kittle, for example, will talk about the meaning of a word in uh, Israel and the meaning of the word in the New Testament era, which could mean you know, the entire Mediterranean. And so what they're doing is they're giving you contextual connotation. And what, you're gonna, what they're going to say to you is, when used by, someone, by a Jew in uh, the New Testament era, it was a slander as well as an actual term. Pharisees would stand and, and pray. We talked about this with regard to women last week, I think. Um, but one of the things they, first things they prayed is, thank you, God, you did not make me a slave, a Gentile, or a woman. So you think they liked Gentiles? Or women. Or women. But the illustration was just Gentile in this case. So that's the difference between denotation and connotation. It sounds very complicated, but when you're just looking these words up, studying them in a resource like a dictionary, which again is just somebody who's done all of the study from the original languages, looking back at papyri and scrolls and things like that, and then giving you the results of their study so that we don't have to spend our entire life devoted to the study of three or four Greek words. So yes, it's a shortcut, but it's a very good one. But frequently, you'll not just hear the denotation. You'll hear in these contexts, it could be this. In this context, it could be this. OK. And then there's historical context. How was the word used in the time and place of the writing? It's called usus liquendi. Um, now we're talking about that. Those two just overlapped. So the connotation in the second of those was usus liquendi. So it's not about what I have connotations, what they have. The usus liquendi is Latin for the use in that location, that place. And then there's figurative versus literal. So is, is this word being used literally or is the word being used figuratively? Um, what is the number one method of interpretation? Think back, because I said this earlier. The number one first thing you do in interpretation. Like what came first and what came after? And what is the word that describes that? Context. What? Context. Don't whisper. Context. Have courage. Shout it out. Immediate context. Well, context is what I'm fishing for. Just context. Because it can be immediate, it can be broader. Context, 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 OK? So, you know, it would sound silly on this thing for me to say that 30 times. But that's really what I'm trying to get across. So now I want to know, is it literal or figurative? What's the first thing I do? Context. Look at context. And nine out of 10 times, that ends the discussion. It's obvious. So, you know, all of this stuff, it seems so hard, so difficult. The reason it's so hard and so difficult is we're reading phrases and trying to figure out what they mean. 
when they're separated from everything else that's written. You read the whole thing, it's like, well, duh, it's what it says. And all of us will get that. Nine out of ten times. So the tenth time, we have to do some other things. Okay. So, for example, what's the nature of the conversation or the communication? Is it a parable? Because a parable, by definition, is figurative. So it may or may not be literal if it's a word used in a parable. We might even want to look up and find, is there a figure of speech, usus loquendi, with that word? How many of you have heard the phrase, the eye of the needle? Okay, so you know where I'm going with this? Where am I going with this? One of you go ahead and say it. It's easier for a rich man to go through the eye of the needle than a camel to go yeah, you, you sort of switched the camel and the rich man. We want to make sure we don't switch the camel and the and rich, the rich man. Man. Okay. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven. Now, the meaning of that, by the way, is on the surface pretty obvious. What is it? It's hard for a rich man to get into heaven. What? Yeah, well, there's a lot more to it. But the bottom line is, in saying that, Jesus is saying it's hard. And the reason we know this is regardless of what he's talking about, camels going through needle eyes can't be easy. Right? Now, is he talking about that literally? Or is he talking about that figuratively? Because if it's literal, can camels go through the eye of a needle? Well, so far, I'm pretty sure it's zero. Okay? But then if you read this, you'll find there is a very strong tradition and some <coughs> historical backing of it that there was a gate in the city of Jerusalem. And it was nicknamed the Eye of the Needle. And in fact, some think this was a type of gate, not just a gate. So if you don't know about walled cities, this makes no sense. And how many of us live in walled cities? I have a gated community. It's almost the same, right? We have a gate. <laughs> so the main gates of the city were these giant things that would be thrown open. You could come in with, you know, camels are tall, by the way. Do you know that? And then on top of them, because they'd be suburban, they would load things that are even taller. It would not be unusual for a loaded camel to need a 12, 13, 14 foot clearance. They're up there. They're the, the giant trucks of that, that time in that area. Now, at night, they close those gates because they can't be sure who's coming and they can't see, for example, a raiding force, whether they be bandits or another army or whatever, from a distance. So the gates are closed, it's protection. But many of the cities are big enough that they need the ability to have someone come through. So on the American frontier, they would frequently have these little holes. You know, the big gates, you've seen them all, you know, logs with little points on the top. Never put the points on the bottom. Points need to be on top. There's a reason for that. It's not very nice. But then those are closed at night, right? So a rider comes in and they throw them open. Yeah, they're not that stupid. <laughs> that rider might have like 40 people behind him with guns or arrows or whatever waiting to just rush in behind. There's no way they're throwing those open. What they're going to do 
is either in the gate or next to it, there's a little gate. And the little gate is probably not here. It's here. Why is it here? Hard to go through. Well, it is hard to go through. Slow. You have to bend over. And as I'm going through it, what am I not doing? Protecting yourself. Well, I'm not protecting myself. Well, I'm, that's not what they're concerned about. What am I not doing? I'm not attacking them. I don't even see them. I'm looking at my feet because I have to go down. So the belief was that there's this thing called a, the eye of a needle that was like that. And camels couldn't go through it. So camels had to camp. They had to camp outside until the morning. They opened the big gates. See? Unless you, you took all of the stuff off a camel, got it on its knees, and then maybe it would get through. But why bother? Because it's supposed to be carrying all this stuff for you. See? Now, how do we know this? Well, you either spend your entire life researching idioms of ancient languages, or you use one of those dictionaries or a commentary. And there's commentaries that specialize in Bible background. Probably the best is the uh, IBP uh, Bible, background. Bible background commentary is what they actually label it. Uh, there's two of them, New Testament and Old Testament. So, now by the way, that doesn't make their conclusions inspired. So they may not be right, but what you do know at least is, and usually what they're gonna do, and this is why I like IVP, is they'll say, some say, and then other scholars disagree. So you're gonna hear that, okay, this isn't everybody knows it, and then you're gonna hear others where universally, and then, okay, so we know that was the case. Uh, IVP is InterVarsity Press, by the way. And they're one of the best resources for Bible tools, or for that matter, discussions, for the simple reason that their bias is very well controlled. They don't have one particular bias, except, by the way, inspiration of Scripture. They do believe in that. But they've got lots of different biases, so that they'll present different biases to you and let you figure it out. that work? All right. Number six, recognize and understand any figurative expression in the passage. Now, one of the ways you understand whether it's figurative or not is knowing figures of speech. Anybody that tells you they believe the Bible is literal, A, hasn't read the Bible, or B, doesn't understand the word literal. I mean, literally, I've been saying this a million years, and people won't understand. Really? Nobody's going to nail that? <laughs> We thought that was an example. Well, it was, but I expected you to, you know, make an example of it. All right. So, we all know, and as we go through this, we'll see, that there are many figures of speech in the Bible. So the Bible is not literal. The Bible is literature which uses figures of speech. Jesus did, the apostles did, the Old Testament writers did, everybody does. That doesn't mean that it doesn't mean what it says. It means you need to know what it is saying. And one of the first things you do is figure out, are there figures of speech? What is a simile? Any English teachers? Anybody of you really willing to admit you're an English teacher? Are you an English teacher? Well, no, but I know what a simile and metaphor is. Well, so now you get to say it, but you don't have the, the, the uh, negative vibes that comes back on an English teacher from all of our years 
of school. Wow, someone didn't like their English. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm there, I'm there. So what is a simile? It's a comparison of two things that usually uses like or as. Yes, something is like this, okay? And another word for that, which helps you understand a simile, is it is similar, okay? Which does not mean it's the same, right? Forgive me if I, you know, offended by the teacher comments, because I knew you weren't an English teacher, so I was not. Okay, just as you know, snarky over here is getting. Here. <laughs> All right, so Matthew ten sixteen um, says, "I am sending you out like sheep among wolves." And what's the key word? Like. like. He is not saying to the apostles, poof, you're all sheep. Good luck with that. He doesn't say that. You're like sheep. So immediately, everybody understands, no, he does not mean the apostles are wool, are sheep. And by the way, he doesn't mean literal wolves either. Because the people he's referring to that are dangerous to the apostles aren't wolves. They're people. All right, then there's the metaphor. A metaphor is a comparison by equation, and it eliminates like. You are this. You are sheep. Now, if Jesus says to someone, you're sheep, does he mean that they're sheep? Little four-leg curly hair. No. Well, of course not. So... The difference between a simile and a metaphor is one is comparing, the other is equating, but equating with the knowledge that it's not literal. So Acts 23.3, um, that's not really Acts, by the way, I think. I'm going to have to double check that. I think that's one of the Gospels. Um, he refers to a whitewashed, no, that is Acts, I'm sorry. That's, that's when Paul gets really lippy. Uh, you whitewashed wall. He's referring to one he finds out is the, the chief priest. He didn't know what the man is. He just knew he didn't like the guy. You're a whitewashed wall. What is whitewashed? Bland. What? Bland. Well, it's bland, but that's not... It's covered up. Covered up. Because what they would do is they, they didn't... That whitewashed doesn't mean washed and then painted. It's covered up. Whitewash is a cover-up. So... You've had this put on front. You're the, you're fake. <laughs> you know, you're, you're 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 presenting something to the world that's just not true. Jesus referred to whitewashed tombs, and he actually was calling people that as well. So it was not a nice thing to say. All right, a symbol is the use of something to represent something else. Baptism, for example, is a symbol. You go down into the water, and then you come up out of the water. What does that symbolize? Rebirth. Rebirth. Well, the up part is rebirth. Yeah. What's the down part? Death. Death. So death, burial, and rebirth. So whenever I baptize somebody and they want to know, when do I go down? I say, no, 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 you're dead. Let me do this. <laughs> dead people don't bury themselves. Otherwise, they end up flapping around in the water, and it gets bad. Um, an idiom is an expression peculiar to a specific culture. Um, for example, that eye of the needle thing. Not a whole lot of camels in Southern California. Have you noticed that? 
There are some, by the way, I believe. Supposedly still some out there in the Mojave somewhere. But as from a failed thing the Army did 150 years ago, but um, not one that we bump into a lot. So we're not going to do a lot of stuff, figures of speech, about camels, right? Even the kid thing started off as an idiom. Idiom, the word comes from idios and it's extreme possession. It's ours, it's not yours. So this is our figure of speech because it's our culture, you don't know what it means. That's what an idiom is. Uh, I have a, a book on my shelf, Idioms of the Greek New Testament. And all the book is, some author spent literally his entire life studying, finding um, expressions that were only used in that, excuse me, in that place and time. Which means that when we read it, we don't necessarily know what that means. Because we don't live in Palestine at zero B. Zero BC or AD? Zero. I'm going to have to go to one so I know it's AD. We don't live then, see? So we don't always understand those. If I went right now to Japan, there would be figures of speech in Japan that they might use, and even if they're translated, I would not understand. When I begin Bible classes, I frequently begin talking about Bible translations. And I talked to you about my friend who was a missionary in Kenya. You know, anybody remember my discussion? And, and what is the phrase that is the hard thing to translate? Hot dog. Hot dog. It's an idiom. It comes from American culture. Now, the Western world has been exposed to American culture through literature, TV, and us. So there's places that know about hot dogs. But the, the people living in the bush 30 miles outside of Nairobi are not among them. So when we use the word hot dog, even if it's translated literally, they have no concept of what you're talking about. That's what an idiom is. Um, a metonymy is where uh, one thing is used to represent something else. So it can be a part for the whole, a whole for the part. Okay? Ephesians 6, 4, fathers, do not exasperate your children. How many of you believe Paul's intent is that mothers can go ahead and do it? No problem. Not even the mothers? Yeah, I knew someone was going to. So, no. Pretty much everybody in this room, we've got almost consensus that Paul is saying fathers, meaning parents. Why would he say fathers then, by the way? Head of the household. He was head of the household, and with regard to parenting, More responsible for yeah, in that culture, the father was seen as the primary parent. In this culture, who's the primary parent? No. The mother is seen that way. So if Paul was writing today, he would have said, mothers, don't exasperate your children. But we would all understand, fathers know you're not supposed to do it either. Okay. All Israel went up against uh, the Philistines. Really? How much do you want to bet? There was an Israelite somewhere who didn't. They want to take the bet? So the United States was against was uh, at war um, right now. The United States is fighting a war in um, Afghanistan. True? How many of you are citizens of the United States? How many of you are in Afghanistan right now? 
Yeah, you're not supposed to raise your hand on that. See, we all know what it means. We get it. So we understand the substitution of one thing for another. So we need to ask ourselves, is that what's going on in that passage? Because the real obvious ones aren't the problem. It's the ones that maybe are a little less obvious. I've had people argue with me about the father thing, believe it or not, in parenting classes. By the way, they weren't fathers. You can go where you want with that. Hyperbole is exaggeration. Does the Bible exaggerate? Yeah, well, that would be more metonymy. Somebody got a Bible? Yes. Look up Hebrews 11.2 real quick. I'm sorry, uh, 12, 11.12. 12. <laughs> we need a little song. Pages are so Hebrews 11:12. Yes, ma'am. Um, Therefore, there was born even of one man, and him as good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. Okay. Has anybody here read any studies on how many grains of sand there are on the shore of the sea? Pick a sea. <coughs> I've actually read some of this. Yeah. The Red Sea? No. Okay, well, the Red Sea. But how many? How many grains oh. of sand? Oh. I thought maybe you knew. No, I don't, because none of those studies ever got beyond, like, a bucket. Because grains of sand are really small, and you've got millions just in this one bucket. And you look across, and it goes for miles, and you figure, yeah, this isn't going to happen. So we know we've got, like, trillions or quadrillions or... You know, I don't know what bigger numbers are. Innumerable. Well, I want something that ends with illion. Gazillion. Gazillion. There you go. We know that's how many are sands of the sea, and we know that not that many human beings have existed, much less descendants of him. And no one's bothered by that? No one's saying? See, God's full of it. He doesn't understand and that's right, no one is, because everyone understands it's hyperbole. What is he meaning when he says, as numerable as the sands of the sea? It's impossible to count. Well, impossible to count, although... There's a lot. Yeah, there's a lot. <laughs> I mean, a, a lot, a lot. That's what he's saying, and everybody gets it, see? But we've got, to, we've got to remember that because there's other places where is that hyperbole. And believe it or not, there's people who will say, no, there's none of that ever in the Bible. Um, rhetorical questions. Use of a quotation for uh, emphasis without desiring an answer. 1 Corinthians 12 and 29, Paul says, are all apostles? What's the answer to the question? No. No. But Paul knows the answer to the question, right? So he moves on. So there's rhetorical questions both in interaction and in writing. And nobody's looking for an answer. We all get that. A euphemism. Euphemism is a use of a less objectionable term for a more objectionable term. Um, First Thessalonians 4.13. Somebody got your Bible out? 
Did anybody catch the euphemism? Fall asleep. How many of you fall asleep? Yeah, some of you are working on it right now. (laughs) Is that a bad thing? What does he mean? Dead. Everybody gets it. You don't grieve when someone falls asleep. Oh, I was having so much fun with them. We don't do that. So Paul uses a euphemism. And from that, we have an entire system of theology that is developed because uh, of trying to take that as a literal phrase. There's, there's other euphemisms. There's also, by the way, some places where translators will use euphemisms instead of actually translate something. So Paul tells the Galatians, who were the party of the circumcision, that he wished they were uh, circumcision. The Greek word is peritomi. I wish you were katatomi. And uh, translators use all sorts of interesting words. Um, um, I wish you were cut. Even disfigured, which is a little bit worse. Peritomi is circumcision. We all know what circumcision is. Katatomi. I mean, just the tone. What do you suppose he's saying? Maimed. Yeah, well, maimed would be the euphemism. See, this is what we do because we lose the intensity of what Paul's saying because we don't want to hear that an apostle has actually said this. Castrate. I wish you were all castrated. Cut off. He's talking about circumcision. Cut what off? Yeah, exactly. That's what he's saying. That's pretty harsh, right? So, and and by the way, that's what the Bible says. But you won't read that most of the time because the translators don't want to tell you that. They want to be nicer. I'm going to, real quick, I'm going to press on and go five minutes over because I'm three over now. So I get it. I'm going to just grab two more. A type is an Old Testament person, place, or thing, which, by the way, is a noun, if you don't remember those things, illustrating a New Testament truth and showing you something that's to come. So one of the most obvious is the Passover. In the Old Testament, in the final stages of Israel getting out of Egypt, the last of the curses, the last of the plagues, um, Moses calls down the angel of death and the firstborn of everything is killed unless they are in a building with the blood of a specially sacrificed lamb spread across the top. And then the angel of death passes over those who are in that building. So the firstborn of the Israelites, including of their animals, all in the buildings, and, in, and none of them die. But the firstborn of every Egyptian family, including Pharaoh's, and even their horses, their sheep, their cattle, all dead. And finally, after all of this stuff that comes before, Pharaoh says, I give up. Just get out. Now, the Passover 
is a sacrifice that was made to save people. Does that sound like anything for a Christian? So the Old Testament, the Passover is a type. The Greek word is typos, and it means a, it's not just an example, but it's like a typeset. Um, they didn't have movable type, but they had type. Uh, it was usually something that would be stamped on coins or something like that. And it is an impression that is forever. And it tells you what's to come. So now all of those who looked for the Messiah to come had something to understand. The Messiah to come was going to save their lives. Now they didn't understand how. They missed that part. But that was the entire time from the inception of the nation of Israel. Every Israelite understood that. And then Jesus is born. And Jesus is called the Passover lamb. Okay. This is the one that never is claimed unless the New Testament says it is. So the New Testament says that is this. Then we know. Otherwise, the reason we don't do that is so many false teachings have sprung from saying, see, that's predicting this, and then we have systems, and it gets problematic. Finally, an automatopoeia. What's an automatopoeia? What? There's an example of one. So what is it? It's a sound that's spelled that way that it sounds. Okay, it's a word that's spelled as it sounds, or at least we're trying to. So buzz is spelled, or bzzz is spelled, B Z Z Z Z Z. You have to have a lot of Z's, right? And, and there are onomatopoeias in the Bible. And if you listen to them, they're kind of fun to understand. So Jesus says, "Don't be like those who use meaningless repetition." It's an onomatopoeia. Bata 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 bata. So you can hear Jesus saying this. Don't just stand there and go bata 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 bata. Don't babble, you know. But it comes across almost academic to us instead of a very, very earthy illustration to them. How do we know? We read it. That's all it takes. Everything we just said, all it takes is actually reading and studying. All right, we're going to stop there. Um, we're going to finish this next week, and then we're going to finish these next week. And we'll use Matthew 3 as our primary discussion. Thank you, guys. By the way, if next week this temperature is similar, I'm up here moving around and kind of enjoying the coolness, and you guys are all going. So someone could stand up and walk out there and shut the, the door. I will not throw things at you if you do. I'm on the verge of turning the AC knob. There you go. Someone else may throw things at you if you did that. You're welcome. Y'all have a good night. Yeah.